typically I felt so much more comfortable going longer distance than the friends that I traveled with. And so I knew already that I was a little bit different. And I thought, if humans can do it, why could I not be one of them? That was Matt Shepard. And this is episode 126 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Matt Shepard, better known as Shep, is a trail and ultra runner originally from Washington State who currently lives in Cochrane, Alberta. Shep is a true jack of all trades. He can just as easily rebuild a carburetor as he can mend a torn pair of pants. A former medic in the U.S. Armed Forces, volunteer firefighter, woodworker, and builder of all things, Shep loves to work with his hands. An entrepreneur at heart, he operates two small businesses and spends his summers working as part of the Sinister Sports Team, maintaining and marking the beautiful Canadian mountain trails. Outside of his day job, Shep can be found exploring new mountain trails or running an absurd distance on a short loop course in the Backyard Ultra format. A few of his notable running achievements include attending two times at the Team Canada Backyard Ultra National Championships, claiming the 200-kilometer Columbia Plateau Trail FKT, and logging a six-day personal best of 701 kilometers. Most recently, he was the first-place male in the 48-hour event at Across the Years. In this episode, we discuss his running background, backyard ultras, his six-day Canadian record attempt, his experiences pacing and crewing for Dave Proctor in his run across Canada this summer, and even a little about the inaugural Divide 200 that Sinister Sports is presenting this coming summer. Shep aims to approach all of life's challenges with a positive attitude and endless curiosity. In his own words, there is so much to be experienced in this world and I hope to get a glimpse of it all. Let's dive into our conversation with Matt Shepard. Okay, Matt, Shep, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Oh, we just had fun kind of doing a little pre, pre-podcast pre chat as we often do. And I was just telling Shep how the very first time he came across my radar was during the quarantine backyard ultra in, well, 2020, of course. And there was this guy, I don't know partway through the race after about one day, all of a sudden running around a coffee shop. So our listeners to this podcast probably already know what a backyard ultra is. And if we, if you don't, you will hear about it soon, but it involves running steadily every hour on the hour until you can't. And Matt was running around a coffee shop with the furniture all moved into the middle during quarantine backyard ultra. And he will forever go down in my memory as the coffee shop guy. And I know there's a lot of other people that probably know him in the same way. So we are going to get to know the coffee shop runner a little bit better during this next hour. So thank you for accepting our invitation. Why don't we get started with you just giving us a little bit of uh, background about yourself? Who are you, Shep? Oh, wow. That's such a loaded question. <laughs> um, it's funny that I'm so widely known as the coffee shop guy. Like, what a silly little event that I never even would have imagined <laughs> before it actually transpired. Yeah, I guess so. Just to give a little bit of a backdrop, my name is Matt, but most people call me Shep. 
And yeah, I live in Alberta, Canada. I kind of travel around quite a bit. Um, I really enjoy getting the opportunity to head down to the States and do races down there. I recently teamed up with Sinister Sports, which is based in Crow's Nest Pass. Absolutely gorgeous place in the Canadian Rocky Mountains. So that's really been a treat to spend some time down there recently. I do a lot of things. I'm I'm really just a jack of all trades. I enjoy, you know, keeping it fresh, like always having something new to do. Uh, so I do woodworking. I, you know, fix engines. I hang out on the farm. It, anything, I anything and everything I can get my hands on. I just I just love to do things. Awesome. It sounds like you are heavily involved in the running community, but we're always fascinated to hear people's backstories, people's entry into running. So what was yours like? When did you pick up running? Uh, let's see. I, I've been running for geez, so long now, it feels like. Growing up like as a teenager, I was overweight. I wasn't very active. I did activities, but I just wasn't committed to my own fitness uh, or my health in general. And then after high school, a buddy was joining the forces and he asked if I wanted to go as part of like this uh, pairing program. And I thought, that's great. You know, we, we were really good friends. What an awesome opportunity. So we went, I, I barely made it in. We ended up not being able to go to basic training together. And so here I find myself in you know, basic training, no idea how I got here and not fit at all. They placed me in this running group called Foxtrot. And basically what it meant was if you don't get out of this like running group for being so poor, so athletically out of shape, that if you don't get out of this by a certain day in the cycle, you either get restarted or you get kicked out. And so like this is how unfit I was. And I just kind of like that. It just lit a fire in me, like knowing you are at the bottom, like you are the slow one in the group and you're dragging everybody down. And I just, you know, I wasn't keen to fail. So I just worked and I worked every night. I was doing extra, you know, even though they work you so hard, uh, I was doing extra just so I could get ahead. And by the end of it, I was, you know, I was, I was in love with running. I had found a new passion that I had and I had grown so much. And yeah, from there, it kind of just snowballed. And I enjoyed just like my own solo adventures getting out in the mountains. I, I had lived in Alaska for some time. And so I spent a lot of time there in the mountains. And yeah, it was it was around that time, 2010, I read an article. Scott Jurek had broke the 24-hour American record. And, and it just like a light went off in my head. And I just was like, people can run that far? I was just astounded. And so within four months, I had set up my own 24 hour race. I, I was living on an island in Alaska. And so I set up my own 24 hour race on a one and three quarter mile loop around the town. And, uh, and I gave it a try. I said, oh, I'm going to see how far I can go. And I did terribly. I had no idea what I was getting into. I, you know, <laughs> didn't eat. I didn't really, I just didn't know what I was doing. So I got out there and I just hammered on it for about 12 hours and I, I think I got about 53 miles or so and then I was like I'm done this is this is not good for me so that was kind of like yeah. how I how I arrived <laughs> in the ultra running world 
what I love about that story, because I, I really think back to the the military thing and you getting put in this group and having to either get out of this group or be kicked out of the military, essentially, by the sounds of it. It's like, I think that could go one of two ways for people. Like people could either take on the identity of like, I suck and I'm not a runner and, and this is me, or it lights the fire under them to, you know, elevate and improve. And it sounds like you went the second route and you are a doer. Like you hear this story about Scott Jurek and then the next day you're out there doing your own 24 hour thing. Like, is this a theme in your life that you just like dive head first into anything that grabs your attention? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is definitely a great way to put it. Like my passion, it burns hot. Like so quickly do I dive into these things where I'm just like, I hear about it and I'm like, I want to try that. Let's go. Yes. I think we're going to hear a few stories about you doing that very thing. So let's, let's follow the evolution here of your running. So you quickly found you were really drawn to distance and going long. Sounds like you, you attempted this 24 hour event. Uh, how many participants were in this 24 hour event on the <laughs> Island in Alaska? How many, was there anybody running with you? Just the one, just me, crazy enough to do it. Everybody <laughs> said, you. like, why okay. would you do that? <laughs> Did you have a support crew? <laughs> I, yeah, I had a friend come along and she gave me some help for through the night uh, until the 12 hours. And we were just both like, this is ridiculous. So yeah, even at that point, it was just like, I knew that it was enjoyable. Like I had, I had a great time taking on the challenge. I had never raced prior to then. Um, and it was, I was more about just getting out and enjoying a long day on my feet. And I, I knew that I had something inside me because I could typically, I felt so much more comfortable going longer distance than the friends that I traveled with. So I would go out for, you know, a day in the mountains and maybe do a marathon and I, it would be not irregular for me. And so I knew already that I was a little bit different. And I thought, okay, maybe there's, maybe I, how far can I go if, if humans had no idea that there was a scale that went that high? So I was like, if humans can do it, why could I not be one of them? Yes. You have accomplished some things that very few people on the planet have by really exploring the limits of human potential in a way that isn't even constrained by a typical race with a finish line. So let's let's just dive right into talking about backward ultras. We know that is an area that you really excel. You've done many of them. How did you move from running around an island in Alaska to being, you know, a backyard ultra world elite competitor? How's that for a question? Oh, wow. It's yeah, it's fun when you say it that way. So I guess it, it originally, I'd have to give a little bit of credit to the fact that I'm a Dave Proctor fanboy. He was like the guy who bridged the gap between the Scott Jurek and the regular people. This was somebody that I could actually see and talk to, but he performed on such a high level. He was a big inspiration for me. I, I remember like, in my training runs, I would I would say like Dave Proctor went out and ran 30k today, and, and, you know like you can do it too. So that's how like I just remember that quite a bit. And then so when I went down and I ran with him, it was just prior to he was organizing this race, and I was like, I'm gonna do this race. It's Dave Proctor's race. I'm gonna be there. 
this is the Outrun Rare Backyard Ultra, the, the original one uh, in 2019. Okay. And so I had not known what a Backyard Ultra was prior to this. Uh, but it just, I mean, it seemed like, okay, like I didn't really have any goal other than just to go and see how far I could go. It, it, it seemed like a really neat format to try and see can can you keep going every loop so yeah it was kind of just by happen chance that i ended up trying this backyard ultra format and then with the conditions that we faced it was torrential rain so much rain um it created so much mud in fact there was so much rain that the river overflowed over the race course i remember going out on one loop and on the way out i was you know just running next to the river and on the way back, I was wading through it up to my knees. Oh. And I, I remember getting back and I said, hey, the course is underwater now. And uh, so the next loop, they had to reroute us. And uh, it actually played really well to my skills because I'm a, I'm a larger, more muscular runner uh, than the typical endurance runner. And so going into an event like this where the mud was so thick, it really uh, put a lot of extra stress on the lighter weight bodies. Mm-hmm. and me and Kevin Barada, both being larger guys, we were able to kind of like just paddle through that thick mud uh, with a little bit more ease. And so I think that's what helped us get to the end, end which in, in the end, it was just him and I. And then I came out as a champion on that one, which then gave me the golden ticket to head to Biggs, the, which is the world championships in Tennessee. I mean, your first big win, it just really... I, for me personally, I, I suppose it really lit a big fire. And so I kind of like drew me to that sport just because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at this, it seems. Okay. So before we go any further down this road, we may actually, there may actually be some people on the planet that don't know what a big backyard ultra event is. So I'm just going to quickly summarize and jump in here. If I get this wrong, Shep, you have to run um, a 4.16667, I think mile loop every hour on the hour until there is no one left able to complete one more full loop than you did. So in order to win, you have to do one more loop than any other person. And it would equate to doing 100 miles in 24 hours if you added up all those loops. Did I get that right? Yeah, you nailed it. 6.7 for our Canadian friends. Okay. Yeah. K. So, um, when you talk about, you know, being a little bit of a stronger, heavier, or I should say more durable, maybe runner, uh, to get through that mud, um, it wasn't just, you had to stay in the lead. You just had to keep making sure you were also racing the clock. You had to make sure that you got those loops done and under the hour, and then we're ready to go out again for another one potentially with very little recovery time. So that's what a a backyard ultra event is. It's essentially a last man standing event. And because of COVID, the originator, the, you know, the person who came up with this idea in the first place, Lazarus Lake, he goes by the Barclays Marathon founder, essentially developed these remote world championship races, right? Where every country would have a team and compete against each other. So I'm jumping a little bit ahead. Tell us a little bit about your experience down in Tennessee. Like that has got to be one of the memories of a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I was still really new to the ultra running world. So I did not know anybody, anybody that was anybody. I I was still learning the names 
And some of the people that I met, I now, I see them quite frequently on social media or I see them at races. But at the time, I remember being there and just feeling so out of my element. I was really grateful that Dave also earned a ticket to Backyard that year so that he was there to kind of be my, you know, uh, support, I suppose, in a way. Like, it was, it was just really nice to have somebody that I knew being so far away at such a high level race that I had never imagined I was going to be in. It almost kind of felt like a bit of an imposter there. Um, because I, you know, I'd done this race and now here I am at, at the big event. The big event. So you say he was a bit of a supporter of yours. I understand that um, he also shared some of his running fuel with you and it may not have gone down so well. <laughs> Can you tell us about oh. the Athletic Greens event? <laughs> yeah, okay, so that this is bigs in 2021, this, this second oh, time this I went. this is later. This is the this second is, yeah, one. The, oh, this okay. Is the and so, oh my gosh. And this is, this has been, nutrition has been something I've been working on for a few years now. Um, the further I go and the more I do it, the better I'm getting at it. But, you know, sometimes things just don't work right. And so race day, I haven't had a bowel movement for over 24 hours, well over 24 hours. So I'm becoming concerned. I'm kind of feeling a lot of like uh, discomfort in my stomach. And so I, I mentioned that, I, you know, hey, here's what I'm facing. Like, you got any suggestions? And they offered me some athletic greens. I just said, okay. I had no, no idea what athletic greens were at the time. Um, and it's like this powder of, of green mixture. So they gave me that. And I go off. And two hours later, I am it, like, there's a rule at Biggs. And he says it every year. Do not poop on the course. It's his dog's backyard. He does not like that. Laz, that's a big rule. Don't poop on the course. And so I am going to poop on the course. <laughs> it is like, there are no questions. It is, it's going to happen. So I am full dead sprint to get to the finish line. It's like 30 hours in at this point. And I'm like, in oh like that pain in your stomach where you have to like stop and breathe. <laughs> And so I go full oh, tilt and I'm passing everybody, you know, like never did I ever think, you know, I'd be passing Harvey Lewis in a run or Courtney DeWalter. But here I go ripping past all of them. I get to the porta potty and it was it was very much relief to have made that loop. <laughs> I'm really sorry that I even asked you this. I asked. I actually I was trying to have some fun and I messaged Dave. And I said, Dave, tell me something that would be fun to ask. And he's like, ask him about athletic greens at, at Biggs. <laughs> <laughs> so I can blame that question on your buddy Dave Proctor there. But yeah, um, it sounds like it's never a dull moment out there. So you attended Biggs in, in Tennessee in 2019. And you've done many since. Like, let's just kind of close this loop on the Backyard Ultra thing. You know, tell us about some of your favorite events. You've, you've represented Canada, I believe, twice at the World Championships. You know, this, this event has grown into quite the worldwide sensation. Did you ever imagine when you did that first one in the river in Alberta that it would become what it has? To say, have I imagined it? Absolutely. Because it it's been my dream. Like from the time I heard that ultra running is a thing, I had thought how far and I had dreamed of like, what could I do in this space? 
And, you know, it had always been there and I never really thought about pursuing it, like going full tilt into it. And so in 2019, I had hired a coach. I invested everything into, I was going to do everything it took to see how far, like if I really gave it everything, what, what would happen? And it took me to the championships, which was pretty phenomenal. And every year since I've reached the ultimate, like whatever the championships of backyard was for that year. So occasionally it's the world individual championships, which happens in Tennessee. Um, and then every other year it's the world team championships, which occur in each satellite country. Was well, that the way it happens now? It's every other year. Yeah. This year was, so this year being the world team championships and 2023 is going to be the world individual championships. Okay. So I don't know, you know, if you've listened to many of our Inspired Souls episodes, but we don't like just to talk about what a person accomplishes. We like to talk a little bit about the mindset behind it, you know, the, what inspires somebody to do something like that? Like, what is it in you that draws you towards these events where really there genuinely is no limit? And also the unique format of the Backyard Ultra where it really is a team event until it isn't. Like you need to work together until you can't. <laughs> so what is it about those two things that, that draws you towards it? I mean, I think exactly those two things are what draw me into it because there is no end. As long as someone else is there to compete with you, then you can continue going. There's no limit to how far you can push your body. And sometimes when there's the right community there with you, you can go really, really far and it doesn't feel like it. And so that really, I feel like, makes that sport so unique in that, number one, you don't have to be elite to run with the best because every loop, they're going to be right there with you. And so that's really neat to be able to share the track with all the people who are, you know, like maybe much, much faster or much, much slower than you, but you get to see them every, every loop. You're still, you're running the same race together as a group. Like imagine if you could take all your friends and you could run a hundred mile race together and you did the whole thing together. It, it's really neat in that way. And then also, you know, the, the challenge of, am I going to give in to quitting? You know, like, cause every time you come back to your aid station, it's an, an easy opportunity to say that was enough for me. And so right. the challenge of being able to stand up and say uh, another one is enjoyable for me. And it's, a, it's like a safe place to put yourself in danger. That is a unique way of putting it. I like that. So it sounds to me, you really like the community aspect of running, even though you've done some very solo, you know, attempts at, at different um, perceived barriers, pushing your limits in different ways. It's, it is a community event. Um, okay, let's move on now to talk a little bit about another way to push yourself. Rather than trying to run forever <laughs> and become the last man standing, you've also been attracted to six-day races um, across the years, six days in Arizona. Um, you've made an attempt at Canadian breaking the Canadian record for a six-day race. Tell us a little bit about how that piqued your interest. Six-day racing, that is a beast for sure. 
Um, I was very naive to jump into to the six day racing, but it, it is addictive. My first six day was in a format called around the clock, which is a minimum of one mile every hour for the full six days. And I had done it in following my first attempt at the backyard in Tennessee. So I had done that one in October, 2019 and December, 2019, I headed to Arizona for across the years, six day race. And it was going to be in that, uh, around the clock format. So my idea here was that, okay, by having to stay moving, but at a much, much more manageable pace, could I go for six days around the clock format is a minimum of one mile every hour for the full six days. So 144 hours doing one mile at minimum. So no long breaks, no sleep breaks for very long. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a great opportunity because you can actually, you, if it takes you 10 minutes or 12 minutes to run a mile, you can get the rest of that in, in sleep. So basically it's like ter- turning a backyard effort and flipping on its head by only doing one right. mile versus doing okay. four miles. But j- you said minimum one mile. Does that mean you could go more? And is there an advantage to going more? Is it like the person with the most miles at the end of the six days wins? Yes. Yeah, so in an, in a typical, I was also in the six day race, but I, as an additional challenge, I was doing the around the clock, which is an add on to a typical 144 hour race in which you just try to see how far you can go in 144 hours. So I was kind of doing a little dual purpose race, but my goal for the whole purpose for heading out to across the years is because they had this around the clock challenge and I wanted to try it. And I had no idea how far I could go in six days. Like, like I said, the furthest I had gone prior was 135 when I did the outrun rare backyard ultra earlier that year. So this is all new territory for me. And I just thought, okay, well, one mile an hour, that seems like it'll be doable. And I kind of made up this plan of, of like how far I thought I could go. And I kind of just, I thought if I could do five and a half hours and then take a, take a nap of 30 minutes and then just repeat until the end. And mm-hmm. it, it was much harder than I had anticipated. Uh, but I, I performed really well. Um, I did 701 kilometers, or 435 miles in the six days, which was the record for that format of around the clock. So it, it, it felt pretty good again to have a nice, I took second place overall at the race. So it was, uh, it was great. It, it, another like kind of fill you up and, and being so close to my first win, I was really feeling a lot of, um, excitement, you know, or like, okay, I, I had dreamt of being able to do this. I doubled down in 2019 and gave everything I had. And now I'm, I'm seeing success and success. So not having any sort of background in, in racing or running, I didn't do the marathon. I didn't do any five or 10 Ks. You know, I just went straight into this like time-based running. So that's kind of like where I, I was drawn to just because I'm like, okay, I really enjoy the fact that I'm not, um, restricted by distance or obstacles or aid station. I just have this one loop and I just have to keep going. And it, that was kind of like my niche is like, just keep moving. I'm not, I'm not fast enough to beat Jim Walmsley, but it, when it comes to not quitting, I'm pretty darn good at it. So that was kind of like where I found, and I really enjoy that slower pace running. I don't, I didn't, uh, enjoy 
getting into like zone five and speed training is so hard for me. I just like getting out and staying on my feet all day long. And so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of what this is all about. And I can do it pretty darn well. So I'm just going to stick with this. And so later that year, so now it's 2020, we followed with the uh, quarantine backyard where I did the silly coffee shop run. And because everything was closed, I thought, well, the Canadian record is only about 160 more kilometers or maybe even less, 140 maybe. And so I thought, that, that seems reasonable, split up over six days to add on if I was actually going to take appropriate amounts of sleep. And so let's try it out. And so I, I booked a track that was certified distance and got some friends together and we held a race. Um, and once again, the weather struck and here I am in a torrential downpour track is flooded on, on race day. And, uh, but we still went for it. We tried out, see what we could do. It didn't pan out very well, but it was a, it was a fun experience. Nonetheless, I did it one more time that year on a track just for fun. And I swore to myself, I will never do it again on a track. I'm I'll do six day again, but I don't know if I could do it on a track. That is, that's a hard, that is a tough cookie. So this one mile every hour for six days, and and obviously you did more than a mile because you covered 435 miles. Wow. Wow. It's blowing my mind. Yes, it's it's a lot of running, but it's striking me that it's as much about the sleep deprivation as it is about the running, that you would only ever get a maximum of probably... 50 minutes of sleep all at once. So can you talk to us about what some of the hardest parts about that? You said that was a whole different beast or something like that in terms of a race format. Like for someone who's never done it, talk to us about what is so challenging about that. Um, wow. There were so many challenges. Notably, I, I knew in advance that I was my mental acuity was going to go down. Like I knew that I wasn't going to be able to make decisions, but I had no idea to the extent in which I would be incapable of like rational thinking. It's funny because I couldn't, I couldn't think clearly, but this memory is so, so burned into my mind. I had just woken up from a short nap and I like to take all my clothes off when I sleep just to get out of the running clothes. And remember, I'm, I don't have time to sleep, so I definitely don't have time to take a shower. And I have my brothers crewing, my brothers are crewing me at this race. So I strip down, I grab my nap, and I wake up, and I cannot even imagine how to start getting dressed. So I have to wake up my brother, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, and I'm, I'm standing here naked, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how, what do I do first? Like, I just, I knew, it was like when you have a word, and you can't, you have a word on the tip of your tongue, and you, you're like, I know this word but I do not know how to make it come out of my mouth. And it was, it was just so wild to me, like to be in that space of, of like, I'm here and I'm, I'm with it and I can, you know, I'm here, but I just cannot function. So you could run, but you couldn't do anything else. You couldn't get dressed. You could... Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I've, I've never ran for six days. I've only done a hundred miles, but even in, you know, if, as I approach 
you know, 28, 29, 30 hours, you start to get that. Yeah, I can't quite think very clearly here. I have lost a full night's sleep and kept moving. I can't imagine what that would be like after almost a week. Mm-hmm. It really is. I imagine it really is about personal management, not just sleep, but blisters and fueling and all of that to to the nth degree, way more than any other ultra. Do you have any comments on that? I'm going to save you a ton of time right now. Go get some toe socks. I use Exo Skin toe socks. No more blisters. I don't. I don't use any lube. I don't use any powder. Nothing. I just put on these socks and off I go. Okay, great advice. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. But um, I, I have to say that whole sleep deprivation thing, like it's not a sell for me for ultras like that. That whole sleep deprivation thing just seems super challenging and not well, 50Ks, a lot you don't of fun. Have to lose sleep, you could do yeah, fifty k's. Yeah, not just uh, you could do a fifty k. Yeah, I think I could do a fifty k, yeah. but uh, six days is uh, mm, I don't think so. Um, but another another thing, and actually, this is where you and I met, Matt, is this past summer when Dave Proctor, we keep talking about this guy, but he ran across our lovely country and you joined him for nine days of that. And I think you completed, was it 650 kilometers with him? Can you tell us what that experience was like running with your, what did you say, idol or... Um, that's a good word. You're a fanboy of, of Dave Proctor. So uh, tell us how you got a, a spot on his support team. Oh, man. I remember when he asked me and I was like, a hundred, he was, it was a ways out from his attempt. He wanted, you know, he's putting everything together and organizing. And he asked me and I said, absolutely. And he said, what day are you available? And I said, anyone that you need me. <laughs> like, Aww. it does not matter what I'm doing. I'm going a hundred percent. I'm going to be there. So yes, I I flew out to Thunder Bay and joined him. He actually finished his run the day prior about 10 kilometers east of the Terry Fox Memorial. So we started the day by running to the Terry Fox Memorial uh, at sunrise, which was just absolutely magical. So I'm already like on, I'm on the journey of a lifetime because like how frequently do you get the opportunity to run with somebody who is absolutely going to break the record so we started terry fox memorial and we go and man i have stories for days this is such an unbelievable experience but i'll I'll tell a couple of my favorite ones so how it works is i am his sole crew and running partner my job is to basically pick him up from the hotel and take him to where he stopped the day prior and then uh he will run for about 20 kilometers and I'll park the vehicle where he can meet me. And so he'll, you know, get some food, get recharged and go and do another 20 kilometers. I drive ahead 20 K and meet him there. And that's how it works for about 105 to 107 kilometers every day. But because I'm a very active person, I wasn't about to sit in a car for the entire time. I would drive ahead 20 kilometers, park the car, get all of his stuff ready, and then I'd run backwards to meet him, and then we'd run to the car together. And so I did that every day for six days. And then at the end of the day, I would make sure that we had enough food and enough water, stop at grocery stores, do the laundry, do all these things to help keep him moving as the number one priority. So knowing this, I had kind of gone in with the idea that I might try to get about 50K 
a day in. I thought I would be really stoked if I had time to get 50K. And when I got there, he was just so dialed. I ended up having way more time than I thought I was going to. So I ran a lot further. But let's let's back up to day one. We're 48 kilometers in and we're running together. I had just run out to meet him and now we're running back to the vehicle and we're going over this bridge and it had like this ledge on it, this kind of like uneven, very rough looking ledge. And so I hopped up on this ledge so that he could share the shoulder space because it was kind of narrow. So I got, I took the more, I was fresh, it's day one. I jump up on the more dangerous route. And then I said something I will regret forever. I said, look at that, it's gorgeous. And he jumps up on the ledge and he looks over and he trips and he face plants into the cement. And I heard when I, when the, like the sound of him hitting the ground, I will remember. And I, and I thought, okay, I think he is, I'm, you know, I'm a medic, um, from as my background in the forces. And, you know, I was a, I was an EMT afterwards. So like, I have a lot of, of experience and I, I heard him hit the ground and I thought, based on the sound, I thought, okay, I think he just broke his arm. Like just the way he fell. And I thought, darn it, oh. that loud smacking sound. And I, and I was just, just a step behind him. And I said, Dave, Dave, and then no movement. And, and so then I, I come around him and I can see a pool of blood and it was, oh, oh my heart sank. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't know exactly where I'm at. I've been having just like so much fun. I wasn't taking very good land notes. So I knew the river, but the the name of the river was incredible. There must have been like 14 vowels in it. I, and so I call 911 and I'm like, okay, you know what highway you're on. You know what river you're at. They'll be able to find you. And as I'm calling, Dave starts to get become conscious and, and he's starting to kind of like, okay, what's going on? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like he starts to get up and he's trying to stumbling into the road. And so now I'm like, I'm definitely dealing with a pretty severe head injury here. He's bleeding. And, uh, I, I, it happened so very quickly, but I remember I hung up on, on the ambulance service because they were, they passed me around so many times because they couldn't figure out where I was. Um, that I, I just, I was like, never mind. And I hung up on them and I, and I took Dave and we sat down and, you know, I kind of just was assessing him, trying to get it's, I remember thinking, how do you assess the level of consciousness on somebody who is so like far fatigued that like, what yeah. is the level of consciousness for somebody who's been running for 40 straight days? Right. So I remember like I was, I, I went to ask him what day it was and I was like, that's a useless question. Who's the, who's <laughs> right. the prime right. minister? <laughs> oh my goodness. But yeah, man. And, and just in that moment, you know, like it was, it was terrifying, but I could see the strength in him because it's like, as he became more collected with himself you know you could tell he was in some significant pain but he was just like let's get to the car and let's just sit down and reassess and we were about a kilometer away so we slow jogged up to the car and he he maybe took 20 minutes there and he he called his girlfriend lana and then he was like okay i'm ready to go and there he goes and he did it he did 105 kilometers that day from 48, he fell at kilometer 48 and he did more than a 50K to finish the day. And that was when I, I, I knew 100% that 
this guy's going to finish this at all costs. Wow. That's quite a story. So I remember seeing the picture that he posted of his bloody face. I didn't know that whole, you know, backstory to what, how that happened. Like it was a full on loss of consciousness. Wow. So you continued on. That was day one. Do you have any other stories in the nine day period to share with us? So I had never been to Manitoba. So I was really excited to cross the Manitoba border, which by the way, it took him 20 days to run across Ontario. That is so, of the 67 day journey, 20 of them were in Ontario. And I've, I've since driven across Ontario back and forth and it is massive. It's so huge. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I remember when we, when we hit, we hit Manitoba, I was super excited. Cause I was like, this is a province I've not been in before. And so I get to check this one off the list. And then that day I ran nearly 80 kilometers and I, my watch recorded zero meters of elevation. So that was another <laughs> one to, to take off on the box and go, are you kidding me? Not even one meter completely flat. Not even one meter. I, you know what? I've joked about that. When I first moved to Manitoba, my friend and running coach was watching my data and she's like, Kim, did you did you really just do a 30k run with six meters of elevation? Like, is that possible on the planet? And I'm like, yes, it is. Well, now we can tell her it's possible to do 80 with zero. <laughs> yeah, oh, I figured even like the error in the watch would have at least given me one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Manitoba. And Manitoba is where you got to run a few miles with Carolyn. Yeah, Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, we had a great time. And actually, I didn't know. So when we joined Dave, he was running with um, Jeremy Wellwood, and who we who is also a previous guest on the podcast. And so my husband and and son and myself and we we're kind of picking up people along the way. But then this guy comes running towards us. And the guy was you and you turned around and, and picked back up with us. And Dave had just amazing things to say about you related to that story of from the day that he fell. He said, I wouldn't have wanted anyone else with me. Like this guy just took such great care of me. He's got the background for it. And uh, that, you know, he had just had nothing but amazing, glowing things to say about you. So it sounds like it was all perfection. It all worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. And I, it did occur to me as I was running along with you that this may be a record that you might be eyeing up someday. Is that uh, true? Oh, man, that's such a hard one to even think about. Like, I definitely know that I need a lot more practice under my belt. Like, I think physically, the challenge is not so difficult as it is mentally. Um, uh -huh. Watching Dave go through it, you could tell that his body was beat up, but his mind was the thing that was taking the mm -hmm. biggest beating, you know, like to get up every day and just be right there. And like the guy is so strong in that way that mm -hmm. I, I can see that that is where I would, I would not be confident in my ability yet. So maybe down the road, that might be something on my radar. I mean, it's, uh, it's a journey of a lifetime, right? Like, if you ever just yeah, even get yeah. the opportunity to try, like, why wouldn't you? So I can definitely say I, I would be interested, but who knows what the future will hold. Well, it's certainly, you know, it's a record that stood for a very long time before on his second attempt, he was able to, to break it. And by a decent margin, you know, the, 
the more we talk on the show and, you know, in the ultra community, we come to realize, and actually even not in the ultra community, in short, fast distances too, the body is capable of doing ridiculous things. We know it's not limited in the physical realm. It is completely limited by our mental beliefs. And so far, you've you've talked about your intense curiosity for exploring those limits, your insane belief in in what you can accomplish. I can you, you can just hear it. It's just so obvious. You're like, well, yeah, of course, I knew I was going to do this, and I did it. Um, and it's not arrogance. It's just genuine, deep seated belief. Now, before we we wrap the podcast up, let's talk a little bit about your involvement with Sinister Sports. So Sinister Sports is a, a race company that um, was founded by Brian Gallant. He, I think there's seven or eight races now in, in the repertoire. And you are involved in helping other people explore their limits by working with Sinister Sports. So tell us um, about what you do with, with them. That it has been just like, what an opportunity. So yeah, Sinister Sports, they put on uh, trail races. You may have heard of uh, Sinister 7, the Death Race, and then we have Blacksburg and Castle Alpine. And now this year, adding on the Divide 200-mile race, which I'm pretty excited about. That is going Yay. to be a real a real giant to wrestle with, for sure. Um and so my role with Sinister is as like the field operator. So I, I maintenance all of the equipment that it takes to run an event like this. I maintenance the trails, go out and do all the um, maintenance to make sure like trees that are down, I cut the trees out or the overgrown brush and trim that back. Make sure the trail is in good repair. And it's like in some places, um, landslides will take out parts of the trail so we have to go out and repair that and make sure that it's safe for people to travel uh and then as well marking and deflagging the course uh after the races so and then during the race i'm out there just doing anything and everything that's needed so i'm i do uh search and rescue i get out and you know fix any problems or sit in the aid station whatever wherever i am needed i am there so this probably takes up a large part of your summer then i'm assuming yeah, so I joined last year. June 1st was my first day with Sinister last year, and that took me through the summer. And then over the winter, I've kind of been working intermittently with them uh, to help put the divide together, and then as well as some other little projects. Uh, and then we'll kick off here uh, soon. We're just doing some, some more things for the divide, and then we've got some equipment things to get ready for uh, the season, which will kick off in July. And man, it seems like, oh, all the way in July, but it sure comes quick. There is a lot of things to do behind the scenes. Okay. So, oh, I have so many questions I want to ask here. The Divide 200, you know, like talk to us about this race a little bit. This is going to be a really epic, iconic, you know, first time event for Western Canada, at least. Uh, I know there was one pre other 200 mile race that has occurred in Ontario. So yeah. Can you give us... Any tidbits of information about the Divide 200? Why should we be excited about this race? Well, okay. So first off, I have to say, Brian is phenomenal with his like trail mapping skills. When he puts together a course, he's going to put together a course that is very unique. And he, he knows how to avoid doing things that like overlapping or really boring sections. And so this one is 
it's neat because of the location. It crosses through some parks. Um, it closely follows the Divide Trail, which um, kind of weaves in between uh, Alberta and BC. You know, so you're going to get a lot of great mountain views. Uh, there's some valleys. There's some easy road section. Uh, and then and then it goes through town and north to uh, the area that you would have explored in Sinister Seven. Uh, but it'll use some different trail than you would see. And so you'll see a little bit of Sinister Seven trail, but you're going to see a, a lot of new trail, new perspective on uh, some of that area. So it's really neat to be able to see how he was able to get 200 miles in this area. Number one, it, it takes so much planning because you have to talk with um, the different parks. Uh, you have to talk with you know the government to, to make sure that you can actually host an event and you know there there are um each ecological surveys stream crossings there are so many different things that go into uh putting on an event that you have to look at in advance so to be able to put on a 200 mile course that is 200 miles of unique trail is incredible and so it'll be really fun now that we've we've got the course and we've got a you know a great field uh, it's going to be really neat to see how it plays out because we have some really strong talent coming to race this year. Yes. I mean, it was a lottery. And even with the lottery draws, there's some pretty impressive names coming coming to this race. Um, as one of the people, you know, in charge of maintaining the trails and preparing the trails for, for the Sinister Sports races, you know, the Divide 200 is not exactly, you know... <laughs> urban. It's very remote, very rugged. Um, what challenges do you see, foresee any challenges with making sure the trail is actually a trail or are there actually places where you have to more orienteer? I'm just wondering what runners can expect as far as trail maintenance goes. So, yeah. So the great thing about this being that it shares a lot some of the divide trail and then it shares some more commonly used trails is that a lot of them are going to be um, maintenance by the park services. So oh, you'll good. get some really okay. great trail in there. Um, even though it is so far remote, um, these, most of the trail um, is going to be really well defined. And so I'll get out and make sure that some of the connecting trails uh, will probably need a little bit of work. But there are a lot of challenges in being so remote in that you can't just easily access somebody in the middle of a route. Like um, from this aid station right. to the next aid station, there may be only one access point. Um, so, and it may only be by horse, who knows? Like, can you use it, um, you know, certain areas you're not allowed to use machinery. So you may not be able mm -hmm. to access those people. So there are, um, you know, possibilities that somebody could have to get a helicopter out if, you know, something bad had happened um, and there was no way to reach them. So those are the things you have, you have to know where those points are and you have to know, you know, like where your runners are and where they're going to be uh, and when they're going to be passing those points. So you know that, okay, they've made it safely through this section. Um, and that's one really neat thing that we're actually bring, bringing in this year is a partnership with Spotwalla, which is this program that will allow us to take uh, your GPS and load it into this map so that you can see everybody all together on one map and then track them as they're going mm. around so you can see where they are um, all together. So I'm really excited about mm. that feature. 
um, and you know, just really looking at all the different angles. Because again, with being so remote, there are a number of different things that can go wrong. And so looking ahead and saying, you know, what's our fail safe if this, you know, like how are we going to make sure that nothing gets derailed, you know, like trying to do all that foresight of, you know, what, what's going to happen here. And then not having radio communication, certain areas are really difficult or, you know, like because it crosses over a ridge in the Rocky mountains, you can't just drive from one side to the other. You have to get on the highway, go all the way around to Fernie and come in from the other side. And that could add, you know, two or three hours onto your trip. So then now you have to think about where are we going to position our search and rescue teams so that they can easily access everybody when, when it's most likely they're going to need help. And it's the first year it's happening. So how far out are your racers going to be spread? Is there going to be somebody, you know, 14, 15 hours ahead of, you know, fourth place? So, you know, there are so many moving parts. The larger it gets, it gets exponentially more difficult to do. So we're really excited this year. Uh, we've got a whole team uh, working together to try to put this uh, put this one on and make it something memorable for everybody. We just interviewed someone that was talking about doing a race like in the Himalayas up at elevation. And it was an application only thing. Like people had to be selected because of just exactly this. Like you needed experienced people because the only way to get them off the mountain would have been helicopter. Is this a, is this 200 miler something that just anyone can sign up for? Or do you have to? you know, prove that you could, you've done like a hundred miler or something before you can even apply to do a 200 miler. I know as part of the application process, they had a um, area to put your bio of like, you know, what you've done and what you've done previously. So mm-hmm. like, a, I guess a, a repertoire of your skills. Yeah. You know, I remember Brian saying, you know, something to that effect that this, this isn't, a joke. This is a difficult race. And if you don't yeah. have experience, just don't like, just don't. Right. <laughs> well, it's a liability um, thing ab- and a safety absolutely. thing, right? Yeah. And you're using resources, right? If it's, uh, mm-hmm. if it's search and rescue and, you know, having all this, um, all these resources for the what if scenarios, right? I think I can imagine that, you know, yeah. there, there has to be some criteria <laughs> to getting in. For sure. It's really impressive that you're going to have runner tracking. You know, the only race I've done that's even close to this remoteness was Fat Dog. And, you know, and at Fat Dog, they'll, there would be good 60K sections that were only accessible by foot in the different in the different aid stations and driving two to three hours <laughs> to get yep. to your runner Around. with no no cell phone coverage, nothing. Um, and it adds a sobering kind of nature to the experience. It's like, really, this is on me. This is on me to get myself through this area mm-hmm. because ain't nobody coming to save you. And if it if they have to, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine, you know, even just having only the divide 200 is your focus and sole thing to do for the summer, but you, you guys have races before and after and all through the rest of the summer. So it's going to be a busy summer and I'm really excited. I'm actually going to be supporting one Heidi Schmaltz, a past, um, we have lots of past guests on this podcast. I'm going to be crewing and supporting her for the divide 200. So that's going to be super fun. So Matt, I know from this conversation that running is a huge part of your life. If you were to try to kind of sum up what running means to you in a few sentences, what would you say? It's the way that I feel most comfortable 
putting myself in an uncomfortable position. I don't try, I try not to put barriers in front of myself. And when I say like, oh, I'm going to run 50K a day, it, it's not, not coming from a place of cockiness. It's just coming from a place of knowing that like 50K is not going to harm me. It's, it, you know, it's not something to be afraid of. And so like, as I get more experience, I start to realize, you know, all the different nuances that can allow me to go further and further and further. And then I look back and go like, oh, well, I used to look at a 50K and go like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a 50K. That's like, you know, a training goal. And now it's like I'll, any day of the week I could just do a 50K because now I know with that practice. So being in that space of running, to me, running is, is my way of just challenging myself to be better. Well said. Well said. It's really interesting hearing what goes on in your head, <laughs> in somebody's head that has accomplished everything that you you have done. Um, and I'm sure there is still much more left in you. <clears throat> so I'm really curious, what's next? What have you got on your personal running radar? I'm super excited. I've got one more race in the spring. Uh, and then I'm going to get into the sinister season and there's not really much time for me to do a lot of racing. Then it'll be a lot of just mountain adventures. But this spring I'm doing a race called Momo Rogo, which is the Moose Mountain Road repeats. How many times can you do it in 24 hours? And I'm going to be doing it with my girlfriend, Kirsty, and we're going to try to do a hundred miles on this, um, this 15 kilometer road up and down. I just did two and a half repeats yesterday and I'm toast. Like, I don't, I don't know how somebody would do that for 24 hours. I've watched this, this event for the last couple of years happen and kudos to you. That's awesome. And it's people underestimate that hill. Like it's, what did you say? 14? Yeah. 7k up. 7K down. So you're running downhill hard for 7K, which is actually even harder than going up, in my opinion, over time. Like it adds up. I agree. Um, so awesome. Well, if we wanted to follow along with your adventures yeah. this summer, where do we do that? Definitely on Instagram. That's like pretty much the only social platform I hang out on. And it's at go underscore Shep, S H E P. Okay. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. This has been really, really fun. Thank you for coming on our podcast and sharing some of your stories and some of your fun and very interesting experiences and good luck with, with everything that you've got going on for the rest of the summer. Thank you. Oh yeah. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 